The following Noble Path talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. Two thoughts occurred to me. One, just to just sit here for 20 minutes and have that be my talk. But um, <laughs> the other, I'm a painter, and there's always a moment when you face a blank canvas and you make your first mark. At least for me, I always think, oh, now no, you went and ruined it. And, um, I had this perfectly blank canvas. <laughs> the rest of the painting is trying to justify that mess. So. I'll have to justify breaking the silence. Um, Good morning. So good to be here. Um, It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that in uh, 1998, I came to ZMM. I think I couldn't have articulated that it wasn't a coincidence. But I both came to ZMM in 1998 Oh, actually, let me take a half step back. My name's Taisha, and I use she, her pronouns. Um, So in 1998, I came to ZMM, and um, I want to start this way, I know where I am. Um, It's also the same year I began to transition. So I'm trans, I identify as a woman. And 1998 was a very, very different world than it is now. And while I don't think I connected the dots back then, certainly a lot of my life since then has connected those dots. That coming and entering into a Buddhist path and stepping into transition at a time when to do that was to run counter to society, to anything and everything that you could imagine was safe and comfortable. You were really putting your life at risk to do that. And so it was with a tremendous, obviously, compulsion and need that I took that step. And as I mentioned, I was a painter, and at the same time, I was in a moment of crisis with painting. I stopped being able to paint, and I really just stared at a blank canvas. And so there was this moment of needing to figure out what to do, both how to live a life that felt in less pain and more authentic than I had been living. And as a painter, I knew what it meant to rest the mind there, right in front of me, with no words. I could hold it there for a long, long, long time in a studio, so I knew that. I didn't connect that with Zen, though. What connected it to me was just happening upon a book, Peter Matheson's Nine-Headed Dragon. I knew of Peter Matheson, but not as a Buddhist monk, which I found out later that he had become, but really as an author. He was one of the people that ran the Paris Review, 
in Paris. And um, I knew of him and I had read um, some of the novels he was well known for. And Nine-Headed Dragons is his Zen journals. It's about his um, journey in becoming a Zen monk. And the good thing about good writers that they're very good writers. So he, he really um, was able to capture a, a um, profound experience for himself. And it was an experience I recognized from painting. But in painting, your studio is a sanctuary. It's where you go to have that moment. It's where you cultivate it. You, you light the fire. You have rituals that can help make that happen. And you thrive on that. You keep going back there because you want to taste that and linger in it. And what Peter Matheson was holding out was a vision where you take that and you make it your life. Make it large, much larger than the studio. Take it into the kitchen, take it into your work, take it into every nook and cranny, right? It's no longer limited to the studio and the canvas. In fact, it's unlimited. And that was an intoxicating vision. And it also gave me a way to okay, I can't paint, but I know what it means to focus my mind and be present, but I don't know what it means to bring that to my life. In 1998, I got on the internet, and um, I found Zen Mountain Monastery. I had a presence early, early on in the internet. And so I came, and I did Zen Training Weekend with Dido Lurie, and it was very powerful. And I did an art retreat with Hojin. I don't, <laughs> and Hojin and I have touched face. I don't know if she remembers me. I had this beard. And anyway, but um, <laughs> a different world. Um, I did some other retreats. But I was in transition. I was already doing hormones. Physical changes were underway. My life was going to go in a different direction. And I couldn't see how, couldn't see how to do it there. Just couldn't see it. Partly it was just that moment in time, in culture. There was trans people in the United States, we numbered in the thousands. And we were scattered and alone and isolated. We didn't have any sense of, of a community, of being held by the culture. Um, we were, if anything, um, extremely marginalized and vulnerable. Anyway, so I couldn't see my place in there, so I left. And around 2000, I stopped going. Um, one of the lessons from that is I'm very sensitive, a part of my dedication in, in, since being back, um, since 2013, is I know what it means to open a door and at least imagine this isn't a place for you. You're not safe here. There's no one here that looks like you, will hold space for you, will welcome you. I know what that feels like. I know the cost of what it means for that person to turn around and leave, because I lost 13 years of walking a path with the Sangha. 
didn't lose 13 years of my life. My life continued, and, and it taught a lot of lessons, and lessons that I um, cherish. And when, um, In some ways, your life becomes your life, and, and you don't try to um, reimagine what it would be like if you had done something different, because you didn't, and so here you are. Um, so I left in 2000. In 2013, I came back. So I, I just was out... Um, I eventually formed a career, I kept painting, I just lived life, and I disappeared sort of into the life. <laughs> and I, okay. We're good? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm dangerous with this. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just sort of disappeared into life. And um, but what happened was I was having Thanksgiving with some friends, and one of them um, was a practitioner, was um, gay, and was a practitioner at the East Bay in Oakland, East Bay's Meditation Center, which is very, very supportive of LGBTQ um, at that time. Um, Q, um, it ended at Q at that time. So, um, LGBTQIA. And, um, and, and every morning, um, Carrie was his name. He'd come out. He had been meditating. And I said, oh, you know, I used to meditate. He used to go to Zen Mountain Monastery, and I sort of gave a short synopsis. And he said, why did I stop? And I, I let him know. He said, you should take it back up. You should, you should get back to it. Why, why aren't you getting back to it? And I said, I thought, I'm just alone, you know? And he said, well, you know, Larry Yang, who was his teacher, this um, person who teaches, I said, Larry Yang's teaching a retreat, LGBTQIA retreat at Garrison. It's a week-long silent retreat. You should take it. And I said, okay. I felt safe, you know. I, I, I could imagine I would fit in that space. So I did. I took um, a seven-day silent retreat at, um, there. And... Um, Oh, it felt so good. It felt like homecoming. It felt so... Just that feeling. And, um, but it was a different type of practice, and I, I, I wanted what I had found in 98 at ZMM. I wanted that for. Wanted, it was just something about what I had found in that monastery that I, I wanted to grow close to. I knew Dido had uh, passed away. So I, I wasn't, and I wasn't sure who, wasn't sure what the monastery had really become um, in terms of a place, but I knew Hojin was still there. Um, and so I, <laughs> I called up and I, I said, I don't know if you remember me, blah, 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 can we meet? And we met out on the picnic tables and I said, um, there's my story, you know, and I'd like to come back. And uh, Hojin being Hojin, uh, to come back, you're welcome. Come on in. Um, yeah, I'll try to speak up. And um, yeah, there was no question. There was no question for her. And that surety of there being no question was really critical being able to face you and say, there's a place for you here. 
And at that moment, 2013, I became the first trans person um, at the monastery, first person I eventually um, did retreats and I did residencies and engaged. There was another um, trans person who was the first down here, um, Finn. And so the two of us in tandem working, <laughs> working the two sides, <laughs> temple and monastery. Um, but it, it was hard. It was hard. Um, in 2013, not 2023, it's still, you get misgendered, you get your own fears. You know, am I, I'm, I'm in the women's dorm, is this okay? And I'm, you know, and you're self-conscious and it's just, and it's just been a process of leaning in and just trusting you'll, someone will catch you and, and you'll be held. And the next time you feel a little more comfortable, a little safer. Um, but the work's happening on both sides. You know, as me getting comfortable with the Sangha and Sangha getting comfortable with me. Um, and it's a work of ultimately, well, let me, yeah, let me take a step back, or let me slow down a little the story. Um, we'll stick a little into that because there's some other hurdles which are more common hurdles and just to let you know what um, sometimes you need to do, just keep going in the path. So I had um, my original teacher um, was um, Ryushin um, and Ryushin eventually left. So I lost that teacher and my next teacher was uh, Sweetset and then I lost that teacher for various events. Um, and eventually... Um, I became a student of Shugen's um, in 2020, yeah, 2020, um, just in time for COVID. And um, I was in a year residency during COVID and, um, and then did Jukai. I had studied to do Jukai originally with Ryushin and that didn't happen, there was Suisse and that didn't happen. So um, I was like on the nine year track to, to get Jakai. I, I took Jakai one and two multiple times because I kept thinking, well, I should take it with this teacher. Um, <laughs> so, to get into them. But, um, so the thing I, so those hurdles existed and, and you work through them. And, um, but I think the thing I want to do, because I want to somehow go back to that moment where being transitioning and coming here was not a coincidence. So transitioning, when you step into transitioning and when you step into a Buddhist path, they're both animated, I think, by a central question of who am I? Who am I? Who's this I? This I that's in pain? This I that is yearning? This I that is the object of people's animus, this I, on and on. You're trying, you you are at a moment of trying to form a sense of identity that can 
hold your spirit, you know, that can feel, can hold it and can feel whole. And, um, and that common sense of path is really important to me. I think part of the work I've done in the time that I've, I've been engaged in the path is I want to open up the meaning of transitioning out of, outside of the usual context of gender and trans, being trans, and really open it up saying it's about a spiritual path of transformation. It is in itself, if you open yourself to it, a spiritual path. This is a path that says, I need to walk in this world authentically. I need to be in this world as, as a way of understanding who I am and who my mind is, what my mind is. And those are not questions separate from what you're taking with you to the cushion and what you're working with your teachers with. They're the same questions that had animated you at some point to say, I can't be in this form. I can't live this life. I need to change. I need to change. And, um, and, but, and so and one of the things that I can, so this will be a little choppy and messy, but that's, that's life. Um, <laughs> it just is. Um, and I, I was only given three hours' notice, so I get, I get some leeway here. <laughs> um, so you need... So one of the things you come up against, right, that one of, the, I think, the most radical aspects of Buddhism is that you're taught that the world is perfect and whole and complete and lacks nothing. You're whole and complete and lack nothing. And yet you're in pain. And yet you need to change. (laughs) And what you end up needing to... But that's, right, that's not just a puzzle for me. That's all of our puzzles. Right? Every one of you did not come here because you're thinking, I'm perfect and whole, and, and boy, I want to just share the love, you know? <laughs> you know? You're all coming in with some sense of wanting to change, of wanting to be different or more or in less pain. There's something that is a hunger. And part of working through with trans is that it's coming to try to understand that you're not changing who you are because of a defect or a lack or something that's missing or that you are living a lie. Initially, that's a narrative you can create. It's common in, in trans to think, I was living a lie and now I'm living the truth. And, and I lived in that. I mean, that, that's, it's not like, oh, you know, I never had that. I had that in spades until, like, I mean, this is where the edge I'm working is that my whole life, at no point, 
at no point are you a lie. At no point are you embodying a lie. You in yourself are not false. Okay. You're out of step. You're in pain. You're at odds. You are being attacked. There's all sorts of things that you can talk about, but you fundamentally are worthy of love. You're worthy of love. And the first worthiness of love is from yourself. And this isn't, right, this is Buddhism 101, right? It is not foreign to, to what we all hear in, 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 the t- in teachings. But part of being trans is because you are rejecting a part of your life and you're trying to claim and form a different life, it takes you a long time to be able to turn around and claim that former life and embrace it and say, I love it. I love you. Because that life and your life, you can't separate them. The one got you to the other. That boy and that young man took a lot of hits in this world to protect me, to get me to a point where I could walk on my own. And um, I don't want to turn to that person and say, you know what, you're just a liar, disposable. I'm done with you. Bye-bye. No, it's more like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Honoring that person. Because they worked hard to protect you. Right? And so... um, And that reconciliation of that central division that I have had to work through is really about um, that it's not that I needed On one hand, I did need to change the form that I manifest in the world. It made some things possible. But part of what I'm working with is that what needed to change wasn't fundamentally me. I'm still me. I've always been me. What needed to change was the breath of my love, of me. Okay. And, and being in community, being in a sangha, means... Maybe, uh, let me, I'll, I'll put it this way. So when I, I came into a year residency the first time, uh, 2019-20, bridging COVID. And I came in wanting to work on myself, work on some of these things. It's all about me at that moment, in my mind. It's like, oh, there's going to be an opportunity to work on me. And there was no time on the schedule to work on me. At least that's how it felt. It's just, it was like constant retreats, constant retreats, constant retreats. (laughs) Wake up at four, wake up. And at a certain point, you thought, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. It's not about me. It's about being of service, helping others. I'm here not to work on myself. I'm here to provide um, an offering to people coming in, to be hospitable, um, to welcome them. 
And I went on that for a while, and then, and then it was like, oh, that is working on me. That's working on me. Because in working with other people, I see where I'm impatient, where I'm judgmental, where I get sharp and edgy and frustrated and all those things, right? And working through those opens up areas in yourself. It opens your heart. It opens compassion. It's the work of the heart. And it's, and so it's that type of thing where, um, for me to claim the whole of my life, I need that whole of that life. I need you. My life's not in isolation. My life is in the give and take of each of us, right? Um, being with you allows me to see me. And, um, let me, I know I'm, <laughs> let me, um, I'm gonna have to end. <laughs> um, one thing I just want, um, so let me just end with a couple paragraphs. Um, there's just some thoughts I wrote last night. We seemingly repress our own power as a way to avoid conflict, to avoid discomfort, but cause to acknowledge fully our powers of creation and creativity would also be to take responsibility for our actions. As if somehow by limiting our capability, we could thereby limit our culpability. Sally, this act of growing small becomes the price of our untroubled conscience. We would rather the cold comfort of our self-inflicted fears than the pangs and pain of love. Fear makes things sharp, sets things in high contrast, me and you, us and them. While love is a messy affair that seeks to rid us of boundaries, the self and the other becoming one, our skin becoming sky. In love, the ego dies and is the fear of that death more than the death of our body that keeps love at bay. Fear and love, fear and understanding, two sides of a coin, just like the word apprehension, the act of taking in, and simultaneously the fear of being taken in. And I'll just end with the last couplet of um, Roca's silent friend of many distances. Move through transformation, out and in, What is the deepest loss that you have suffered? If drinking is bitter, change yourself to wine. In this immeasurable darkness, be the power that rounds your senses in their magic ring, the sense of their mysterious encounter. And to the silent earth, say, I'm flowing. And to the flashing water, say, I am. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.